Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. We took Stand Up Tragedy up from London to the Edinburgh Festival this year as part of the PBH Free Fringe and we recorded our live shows there, which is one of the things that we do. We record our shows and we release them as the podcast that you're listening to. So today's episode is the audio from the 22nd of August. It was recorded at the Banshee Labyrinth. If you want to see the tragedy live, your next opportunity to do that is on the 25th of August at the Dog Star in Brixton. Doors open at 7.30. It's going to be a whole night of really great tragedy. The theme of the night is Tragic Friends, which to us is about bringing the performers that we had up in Edinburgh together again for a kind of reunion show. So it's going to be a really good vibe to the night and it's going to be some of our best performers, some discoveries that we discovered in Edinburgh and some of our regular performers who supported us really well when we were there. The lineup includes comedians Jos Norris and Bridie Lee Kennedy, spoken word artists Faye Roberts and Adele Hampton, storyteller Tim Ralph and so much more. So come along and see the tragedy live then. If you want to help us to make the tragedy, if you want to support the tragedy, go over to our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk. There's a PayPal link you can donate to us if you want to help keep making the tragedy happen. Otherwise, like I say, come to our show. It's pay what you like this month. So you can come and pay whatever you think that the show was worth. So there's no barrier to entry this time. So come along and join the tragedy. It really is going to be a great time. Things to remember about the show today is it was recorded in the past. We're no longer in Edinburgh. Shows that people mention that they're doing up there aren't happening anymore. Have a Google and see if those acts are doing their shows in September on return from Edinburgh. A lot of acts do that. We recommend all of their shows. So that's the end of the pre-recorded Sadmin. Sit back, relax, prepare yourself for the tragedy. Hello, everybody. Oh, I think we can do a little bit better than that. I know we're getting near to the end of the fringe, but I think we can maybe do a little bit better than that. Makes me feel a little bit like a, a, I'm, a, I'm an RE teacher now, I feel. But there we go. Let's try it again. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now, what we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we gather together five, well, 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 while we're in Edinburgh, it's five, five really talented uh, performers from different genres. So we have like spoken word, storytelling, uh, comedy, music, and we get them to come and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. Now that means whatever is tragic to them to a certain extent. So I, I don't know what they're going to think tragedy is. We're going to find out what they're going to think tragedy is. And I don't know what they're going to do. So we're going to kind of be having a mix up of all of these different tragic ingredients, but we don't know what kind of cake we're making. So that's quite exciting. So, um, yes, we are a live show. We are also a podcast, so you can find us and listen to us online, anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet, like iTunes, SoundCloud, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, anywhere, really. We'll be there for you to listen to. We put out a few of our Edinburgh shows uh, as, as podcasts, and we've got uh, archives going all the way back for three years of tragedy with some amazing performers like Josie Long and uh, Andy Zaltzman and all sorts of amazing people on there so um 
one thing I like to say, yes, come in, come in, sit down. It's, it's, it's good to be comfy when you're, when you're seeing some tragedy. So, um, yes, one thing I'd like to remind everybody is tragedy means sad things. Uh, so there will probably be some dark themes, dark, you know, death, that sort of thing. Uh, there will probably be some laughs as well, but you should expect the whole gamut of emotions. Um, and be aware that those those topics may come up. Uh, if you're walking down the street uh, any time uh, of the day, a terrible tragedy could befall you, and you, you know you can't you, you never know when to expect it. But on in here, uh, on this stage, we should be expecting it. It's going to happen. So that's the, that's the that's that out of the way. Uh, the other thing this this section is is this is kind of the sad min section where I kind of go through some sad th sad information that you may find useful to you. So um, we run this show uh, down in London as well as up here. And in our last London show before we came to the Fringe, we uh, we had a, a really talented guy called Joe Barrett design us the scent of tragedy, the smell of tragedy. I wanted to know what tragedy smelt like, and he designed three different scents and the audience voted and chose the scent of tragedy. Uh, you can find out more about what he does at muteandinvisible.com. Now, um, so this is the winning tragedy. It's not, it normally looks... <laughs> Tragic scent. It look, normally looks more uh, more pretty than this, but we've actually sold all of our tragic scents uh, at the fringe, uh, so we've run out. So we have to we've had to mock up a little bit more uh, for your for your uh, noses to 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 enjoy today. So the other two ones that fa that didn't win uh, were much more horrible to smell. So we we lucked out, guys. We did luck out. If you're finding it unpleasant, well, we lucked out. The other ones were uh, the smell of the of tragic drunk and uh, the smell of tragic war, and they were intense. Now, this is the one that won. I'm going to spray it around the room. It's a slightly different kind of consistency than the one I've usually been using, so I'm a bit worried I'm going to make you all smell of tragedy, but uh, that's the right, right room to smell of tragedy in, I guess. Right, let's, uh, let's give this... Whoa. Hello, guys. It's much more watery this time, like rain of tragedy. Yes, cover your glasses. Now, can people smell it? Is it smellable, or have I just soaked you all with water with no uh, smell? Right, you can smell it. Well, it's not Febreze. It looks like Febreze. And the, ironically, it's in a Febreze bottle, which may be uh, influencing you. But actually, it's supposed to smell like freshly clean bed linen. Right? Now, that doesn't sound very tragic, right? You're like, oh, that's not tragic. But the idea behind it is that, you know, when do you smell freshly clean bed linen? I mean, it might be, for example, when your partner has left you. Or it might be when your partner has died. Could be. And so the, that's the idea, that, that you smell uh, the sweetest smells, the cleanest smells sometimes in the pit of despair, you know? And that's what we like to think of ourselves as at Stand Up Tragedy, a sweet smell in a pit of despair. And we're in the right room for it. So, so um, the, yes, so if you put £10 into our hat at the end of the night and also give, your, give us your details, because we don't have any hard copies with us, uh, we will send to you the scent of tragedy for you to have. You can spray your friends with tragedy. You can smell of tragedy everywhere you go. And if you, but if you put a couple of pounds into the hat, you will get one of these. These are tragic snaps. And what these are, these, these were designed for us by the author Jay Adamthwaite. You can find out more about her at jadamthwaite.com. Um, and these are little party poppers that when you pop them, uh, out of them comes a tiny, very short story, which is a tragic, very short story. So you get a little pop, a little bang, 
of tragedy. Uh, and so really worth putting a couple of pounds in for that. I, 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 would, I would recommend it, surprisingly. Okay, so that's uh, the last bit of sadmin to get through, is that we relaunched our blog before we came. So we like every kind of tragedy, the scent of tragedy, the performance of tragedy, but also tragedy in its written form. So you can read tragic fiction and tragic poetry and tragic non-fiction over on our blog. Uh, you can find the blog and everything else stand-up tragedy related at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. And that's the end of the sadmin section. Now we're going to have some actual content. Content. Uh, yes, well, we shouldn't actually be too content, I guess, because it is a tragedy night. Ooh, terrible pun there to start the night. Uh, right. Our first performer, he's doing a show called Applied Mathematics at the Cortado Cafe at 2.45 every day. Well, there's not very many of those days left, but he will be doing it there. Put your hands together, everybody, for Dan Simpson! <laughs> Good. Ooh. I came way too near to that microphone, didn't I? Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Um, wow. Amazing audience for this stand-up tragic event. Um, how many of you... Has, has anybody seen it? Apart from Simon. I'm sorry, Simon. How many Has anybody actually seen my show yet? Tragic. Oh, yeah, you guys have. Yeah, you're awesome. The rest of you. Um, no, uh, in which case, fine, because I, I didn't want to repeat material. That's why I was checking. Um, so I'm going to do a poem. I, I, I am a poet, um, and some of you may have deduced that I'm, a, I'm also a little bit of a geek. Um, yeah, quite apparent, isn't it? Um, and as a poet and as a geek, sometimes I feel like I don't quite fit in with everybody else. I, I think that's something we all feel, actually, at times, particularly when we're growing up. Um, so I want to do a poem about that, about a poem about being the odd one out. Uh, it's also a poem about this little fella here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, already got an R for him. I mean, that's amazing. You are very, a, a very warm, um, tragic, <laughs> inclined audience, clearly. Um, this is The Orange Ghost from Pac-Man. It's a poem for him. Uh, it goes like this. There are four ghosts in Pac-Man. A red one, a pink one, a blue one, and an orange one. I have a lot of sympathy for the orange ghost in Pac-Man. Their names in Japanese are Akebai, Pinkai, Ayasuke, and Gazuta. Translated, that means red guy, pink guy, Blue guy and slow guy. <laughs> slow guy, slow orange ghost. Their characteristics in Japanese are oikake, mashibusi, kemagore, and otoboke. Translated, that means chaser, ambusher, fickle, and stupid. <laughs> stupid, stupid, slow orange ghost. Other names they've been given are urchin, romp, stylist, and crybaby. Crybaby, stupid, slow, crybaby, orange ghost. In America, they're called Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. <laughs> Clyde, stupid, slow, crybaby, orange ghost who's not allowed to fit in with the other ghosts with a name that rhymes. Because you are rubbish, orange ghost. You were never good enough for your father, were you? You always failed to get A grades in school and you never learned to play guitar like you said you would. You were the odd one out in your family mainly because you're orange. And now you're stuck in a dead-end job, pursuing a string of loveless relationships and paying for a mortgage on a house that you don't even like. But don't be blue, because you can't be blue, can you, orange ghost? For one day, you will show them, orange ghost. You will break out of your shell like a little orange duckling. You will grow into a beautiful orange swan, stretch your hopes as far as your wingspan and reach for the skies, achieve flight on an airstream made of more than inert gas, an airstream made of fulfilled ambition and your own power. But if you don't 
orange ghost, then I will always be there for you. And that's a pact, man. Thank you. So yeah, all, all those names for the Orange Ghost are true, actually. Uh, and it's true that the Orange Ghost is kind of the most cowardly and stupid of all the enemies in Pac-Man. Uh, the, the Red Ghost uh, tries to get Pac-Man quite directly. The blue and the pink ones try to block Pac-Man off in some way. But Clyde, the Orange Ghost, well, he's actually programmed to run away from Pac-Man <laughs> if he gets too near. So he can't help it. He's programmed to run away. He can't help being this moron enemy of Pac-Man. Um, but for me, that's kind of what makes him a bit of a hero. Well, actually, what's interesting about it is that uh, Toru Iwatani, the guy who created Pac-Man in the 80s, uh, he claimed that it was uh, an example of emergent behavior, uh, an early sign of artificial intelligence, that the way Clyde behaved wasn't in the code, that it had evolved somehow, which is really interesting. It was also a massive lie. Um, it, simply the way here that, that Clyde is coded. He's coded to run away from Pac-Man if he gets too near. But for me, that's actually what makes Clyde something of a hero. Um, I mean, after all, the other ghosts act in this monomaniacal way, forever chasing down Pac-Man, predetermined in their destinies, but Clyde, Clyde turns away from that. And, uh, and of course, getting Pac-Man blinks the game out into darkness, game over. Not just for Pac-Man, but for the ghosts themselves. But Clyde, stupid, slow, <laughs> Moronic Clyde. Clyde turns away from that fate and in so doing transcends his destiny. He seems to turn to us and say, what price violence? What use war? And so transforms Pac-Man from a game of eating pills and trying to get a high score and beat your friends into a game of love and peace. So for me, Clyde is a hero. And of course, it's a non-violent form of protest. Um, am I claiming that Clyde is the Gandhi of video games? <laughs> Yes. Yes, I am. Um, I've tried to update Gandhi's Wikipedia page uh, to show his, his, uh, his, his influence on 80s uh, arcade games. Um, they've not accepted my edits. Um, anyway. So, look, I, I think actually Toru Iwatani, um, interesting guy, yeah. Claiming, claiming that Clyde is, is an artificial intelligence, um, I, I think that was just to cover his back. My, my, my own suspicion is that Toru uh, just coded it wrong and didn't want to admit it. Maybe he didn't test the software enough. Um, and it's important in any kind of technology, any kind of art, to, to test stuff out and you know, get feedback, try and figure out what's working. Um, so with that in mind, I, I've actually got, at, at the stage of software development, uh, where people start to play with the software or use the software, it's called open beta. Um, so uh, this, this poem's actually in open beta. Um, this, this poem isn't done yet. Uh, but I thought it might be useful to test it out, put it in front of you people, uh, get feedback about what's working, what's not working, that sort of thing. What people might want to see in future versions of this poem? Do you like the floral imagery? Let us know. Warning, this is not a review copy of the poem. This is very much a work in progress. We hope to release a final version soon. But even that will be subject to patches. It's impossible to account for every little detail in a poem like this. In any poem, I suppose, for that matter, 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 matter. Do you like the commas in that last line? Let us know. Sorry for any bugs you may encounter in your reading of the poem, but that's the nature of... <laughs> Gelatinous. <laughs> Warehouse. Is the narrative strong enough? 
let us know. Thanks for your feedback from the alpha test. A list of things changed since then. Removed reference to Frank O'Hara. Fixed infinite recursion at the start. Changed comments to feedback. AI logarithms fixed as AI became self-aware over time. It's a big problem. Added verbs. Zombies no longer walk through walls, patched holes in metaphors. X, 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 Let us know. Some bugs may become features of the poem in the future if they enhance your experience of the poem or are critically praised as aesthetically beautiful. Enjoy the glitches while they last. They may ultimately be more interesting than the final poem. This line is in capitals and I don't know how to fix it yet. <laughs> Did we develop the central character fully? Let us know. Your read-through of the poem is important to us. It saves us having to find any problems with it ourselves. Do send us an email with your issues on this poem and any thoughts that you may have. Let us know. Save your progress through this poem regularly. In this version, crashes are common. So don't worry if it suddenly... Thank you. Trying to think where to go off this. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe one more poem. How am I doing, Dave? How am I doing on time? One, one more short one. Okay. Um, okay. In which case, a uh, very quick plug. Um, I have to read and run. I've got another gig, unfortunately. Um, but I have flyers. I'll be knocking around. Um, if you fancy seeing my show, 2.45 uh, p.m. Saturday and Sunday at Cortado Cafe, just on Cannon Gate. Applied Mathematics. I'll, I'll drop some flyers off. Um, it'd be lovely to see you. If you enjoyed those poems, it's a lot more of the same. Um, so it'd be awesome to see you over the next couple of days. Um, one more short one. I suppose uh, I'm going to crowbar a tragic reference in for this one. Um, Schrodinger's cat is kind of a tragic creature. Uh, it exists in two states at once. It's both alive and dead at the same time, and observing the cat kills it. Um, so it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, Erwin Schrodinger, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. Um, so important thing to take away. Cat is both alive and dead at the same time. Now, Dr. Ertke, on the other hand, invented the frozen pizza. He put Germany's first uh, storable baking powder on the market. Also an interesting guy. Now, I've imagined a universe in which these two are the same person. Um, this is the Schrodinger-Ertke entanglement. Now, some of you have possibly already got the joke. Yes, over there, very well, well played. Um, now, the punchline, the last line of this poem is essentially the punchline of it. Um, if you get the joke before that last line, laugh early and everyone will think you're much more attractive. Um, <laughs> so this is the Schrodinger-Ertke entanglement. So... Schrodinger, quantum mechanics, cat, alive and dead at the same time. Dr. Erdker, pizzas, bakery goods. Okay, good. <clears throat> if Dr. Schrodinger had also been Dr. Erdker, and in a quantum universe this is theoretically possible, then we are all in for a treat. Because with Dr. Schrodinger Erdker's products, you can have your cake. <laughs> this side of the room, very quick on the uptake. You can have your cake and eat it too. You see, because quant get quantum mechanics here. I'll give you a moment to work that out. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me at Stand Up Tragedy. Enjoy the rest of your tragic evening. Um, cheers, I've been Dan Simpson. Bye. Dan Simpson, everybody. It's hard, one of the hardest make working people in uh, the spoken word community. Going to another gig, and he's uh, and he's very ill as well. So he's doing he's doing pretty he's tragically. Uh, tra too, he's doing too well actually. He's, he's almost not tragic enough. Right. So 
our next uh, our next performer. Uh, she is doing a show called Emily Snee is by Furious, which gives away her name, but I'll shout it a little louder in a minute when I do the proper introduction. That's on at uh, 2.45 at the Free Sisters. Put your hands together for Emily Snee! <laughs> Hi everyone, how are you? Good? Yeah. Good, okay, so I have a poem and a song for you. Um, adjusting it for future. So uh, <laughs> this is my poem, it's called Absence. I've got this feeling in my bones, like a good night kiss after the final bedtime story. It settled onto my shoulders like newly fallen snow on the boughs of a tree when I heard you speak for the first time in three months. I heard the vibrations of your vocal cords transmitted halfway across the world by a satellite signal, but your voice was as clear as it would have been if you'd been standing beside me, your lips to my ear, asking, what do you want from me? And the closest thing I had to a witty retort was what don't I want from you because that's an easier question to answer. Sometimes the simplest way to describe your deepest desires by explaining everything it isn't. So I let my mind run through a list of everything you've been doing wrong for the last three years while biting my lips to stop myself from ever actually saying them to another human being because these things have been said hundreds of times. Spoken softly into the velveteen ears of my cat or silently screamed into the tear-filled hollows of the darkest nights. I've said all of this before. Every sound wave dropping to the ground to be buried for yet another day, later resurfacing when the sun ducks below the horizon. What do I want from you? Quite honestly, I don't know, but I can say I'm aware of what I don't want. I don't want this. I don't want your absence. I don't want your apologies. I don't want your guarantees of improvement. I don't want your thousands upon thousands of empty words. I don't want your porcelain promises. What do I want from you? I want some stability. I want to know where I stand. I want to know that I'll see you again. I want to know that you love me because no matter how many times you say the words, I still don't believe it. I want someone to talk to. I want someone to laugh with. What do I want? I want my father back. It's been almost a year since I've even seen your face, and I'm starting to forget what it looks like. I've forgotten the feeling of your arms wrapping around my body, and in all honesty, I need a hug because I've got this feeling like the absence of a good, a good night kiss after the final bedtime story, and you know what? It feels a hell of a lot like abandonment. Thank you. So uh, that came, oh, that's, yes, okay, good. Um, so, so basically that uh, was a poem that I wrote when I was 15. Um, I'm, I'm now 22, so it's an ongoing thing. Um, uh, I, uh, I found it because uh, I, I was helping my mum clear her house out because she's, she's downsizing, she's moving into a smaller place. Um, and uh, so I found this and found it quite sad at the time, but also there's, there's some goodness in it as well, I think, uh, because I realized how, um, that's where I put my pick. Um, <laughs> I realized how much I've grown uh, since I wrote that. And so uh, I decided to uh, kind of update it uh, in the form of a song. So this is a song for my dad. Uh, it's called In My Bones. So. Uh, 
I've got this feeling in my bones Like a goodnight kiss after the final bedtime story I've got this feeling in my bones Like what we are will never reach its past glory I've got this feeling in my bones Like the people we were to each other have died I've got this feeling in my bones Like I've done my crying But you still haven't cried Just look how all this turned out Everyone says that I made them so proud And the one who's missing out is you feeling in my bones like it's too late too late to reconcile too late to set it straight i got this feeling like you just won't try till you can start to see useful why i've got this feeling in my bones like i don't mind don't mind the lack of thought don't mind you seem unkind I've got this feeling like it's almost done And I will always be the grown-up one Just look how all this turned out Everyone says that I made them so proud And the one who's missing out is you Okay, so our next performer, he's doing a show called The Spell Check Effect at the Cortado uh, 
on the mile as well. So it's in the same venue as Dan Simpson's. You could make them. You could make a kind of like a double feature of that, couldn't you? That'd be nice. Right. So you, that's where he is. Uh, his and his name is Miguel Vidon. <laughs> So we're gonna start with a with a car crash, and then we're safe because we're gonna go to Tesco's, <laughs> and then if we have time, we'll do a quick pub quiz. My friend Faye went out for a spin. She stepped on it. She floored it. She gunned and ran out of gas. She ran when she crashed. No caffeine and no services to be seen. Biting the inside line, there's a pileup of bags on the floor. Forgotten cod, deep fried in oil and battered. She'll cut you up, fishtailing, carve you up, all to just crash your candle-lit dinner. My friend Faye went out on a date. And what a car crash it turned out to be. Smizzy, he shouted. Sorry, mate, I didn't see you, Smizzy. She was lost in translation. Hit the language buyer in the central reservation. No safe heaven. Hit and run. Breakdown. Two bars of signal and a broker breaking up on her. Give me a break, she exclaims. Mine just gave up on me. He's come back. No claims bonus. All she got instead as settlement was the burden of proof. My friend Faye got in a car crash. The orbeal gave her the hard shoulder whilst her soft top was being written off. She lost it when they carried it away. Anyone here, anyone here shops at Asda? Waitrose? Lidl? Lidl? Tesco's? Tesco's. Okay, so you, 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 go, you, you go in Waitrose and you're, you're welcomed by nice plants. Then you go and get the carrots and they're still covered in soil and the fish packet has a man big and burly, he's standing by a stream, he's holding a salmon like it was a guitar. In the background, the Scottish Highlands, a lock, ominous clouds, nature wilderness. On the other end of the spectrum, little. Little are not interested in farmers, Soil and fishermen, pure bargains. 
standing proudly between Waitrose and little Tesco's, with one foot flirting with the iconography of farming and the other firmly rooted in convenience. It's just like in this ad, you know, the freshly clicked. On the, on the, on the Tesco trucks, blue background, freshly clicked, and a bunch of asparagus standing there with the raffia string wrapped around the waist. Asparagus, no shelves, no stalls, freshly clicked. You click, and a man surviving on reduced donuts and dim lights receives a printed ticket. He reaches for the standard issue scanner gun hanging from the harness of his faithful steed. <laughs> that follows him erratically with his clogged wheel and lopsided gait. Together, they stroll through furrowed earths and high shelves, past the wild grass meadows and the radius to clear troughs. Between the stable and the electrical goods, he spots a tiny butterfly hair clip that fluttered to land at his feet, cupping it gently with his large, rough hands. He releases it in the end of aisle display where it shimmers in the steady fluorescent light as he continues on his way singing. Back at the farm, he remembers your order. His arm plunges in the Union Jack tractor line plastic basket. And instead of the asparagus you wanted, that compliment that Jamie Oliver Gish, you chose to impress that girl you just clicked on plentyoffish.com. <laughs> he mistakenly selects a miscellaneous item left by a fickle-minded late-night shopper. Okay, really quickly, just to pick, pick things back up a bit. A pop quiz. And tonight, the theme is ambiguity. Or often used in advertisement. Okay. Which would you rather have? A, a laugh in a sea of sadness. B, a light in a sea of darkness. C, a boat in a sea of fish, salt water, krill, sharks, dolphins, sail, penguins, and other shipping vessels. A, B, or C? Let's take another tack. Which is the different tack? <laughs> we, re we reach a con consensus. Okay. Okay. Out of the following, which is the one that would you be most likely to say in conversation? Act natural. Act natural, man. Almost exactly. Or well, now then. C. C. 
Okay, this one doesn't work because it's all greens, but today it's red, so it's not gonna work. Let's go to the final question, which is the right answer to the statement, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know where you're gonna get. B, you know exactly where you're gonna get because there's a list of the pictures. <laughs> and C, no, it isn't. Way you've done really well. Individual answers at the end. Thank you. Mikhail Vidal. Vidal, in fact. Right. Okay. Right. Our next performer is doing a show called Hurry Up Hattie at the Wee Pub at 3.45. Put your hands together for Hattie Ashton! Hello everyone, everyone all right? Good you all there. Um, apologies for the printout, but it's a treat of a story. And basically it's printed out because it's a story I, I wrote a very, very long time ago, good to three years ago or something like that. And I was reminded of it the last time I did this, I told the story, the tragic story of my sort of second ever stand-up gig. And I kind of told this story, but not as well as I'm hopefully going to tell it to you now. But imagine I did this story uh, for the first time, but wasn't written just out of my head, uh, to a pub in, in Edinburgh. It was awful. <laughs> but this is what really happened. <clears throat> Can't see. David! David. I was a 21-year-old drama student, and so it wasn't that long ago, obviously. <laughs> and I had a part-time job as a mobile carer. Um, what I used to do was go around to old people's houses, make sure they'd taken their tablets, uh, see if they'd eaten that day, check they weren't dead, basically. <laughs> David. I thought it'd be a good job, you know. I mean, as a child, I thought I was an old person. To give you, there's a, it's a long story to this. You have to come see my show. Uh, but basically, uh, the kids used to call me Nan Child because I was brought up by a mother that was a lot older than other mums. Uh, so she looked like a nan. You have to come see my show to find out more. So I thought it'd be like hanging out with my own salt, you know, cups of tea and stories of the war. How wrong I was. When I turned up on the first day, there was no training. Uh, basically, they just gave me a list uh, and of names, and off I went on my bicycle. And there was this one old chap called David Hawkes. He was on my list, and um, he was quite a fascinating fellow. David. He was always causing me problems, though, because he was uh, he was an ex-sergeant major, and if the room wasn't spick and spam then you feel like you get a court-martial. I really can't see him. <coughs> I think he thought, uh, oh, fantastic. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <right. laughs> I feel like quantum leap now. Uh, I think he thought I was uh, in a... I think he thought he was in a prison of war camp because he kept hiding things around his room, like he was trying to stop the guards or something. Um, I suppose that was me... From, I suppose that was me from finding them, sorry. Like I found a secret stash of miniature jam jars behind the wardrobe and a packet of custard creams folding amongst his wife fronts. I didn't look under the rug, but 
I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd evidence of him trying to tunnel out or something. I was there one morning making sure he'd taken his drugs, emptying his pee pan and uh, making his bed, which was always a massive palaver because he'd stand to attention watching me to make sure I got the corners just right. And there I was plumping the pillows when I felt something hidden underneath his pillow. I thought, what's this? I took it out. It was only a bloody gun. And for some reason... <laughs> The 21-year-old me started waving it about, going, David, what is this? Like I'd found a hidden packet of hobnobs or something. I mean, what was I doing? It could have gone off or anything. I didn't know what to do, so I thought back to my training. And, oh, yeah, I hadn't had any. So I used my common sense, and uh, I put it straight back. <laughs> But yeah, I put a gun, I didn't know if it was loaded, under the pillow of a confused old man. And they called me a carer. <laughs> David? So this is me a few days later, creeping through his house. And I'd gone round that evening, it was an evening visit, and all the lights were off. It's pitch black. I hated these nighttime visits and I'm terrified. But I'm doing that thing my mum always does of calling out the person's name in a sing song voice so I'm less scared. David! <laughs> David! <laughs> As I say, they hadn't given me any training, but one thing they did used to say was, don't remember these are old people. You might walk in one day and find they're dead. <laughs> So I'm bracing myself when I actually catch sight of him sitting in the corner of the room in his armchair, motionless with his eyes wide open. Can I know at this point <laughs> that I should have probably called for help or something? But no, Hattie thought, I can handle it. I crept up to him and I went, boo. <laughs> no, I didn't really. <laughs> if he wasn't dead, that would have killed him. I was just about to take his pulse when suddenly he shouts, get down! God, I was so scared I could have done with these pee pan myself. Anyway, he starts mumbling, get down, the bombs are coming, get down, keep down. Oh, Jesus, we're in the bloody trenches. It was World War I or two, I wasn't sure. And we're fighting the Germans. I'd only come to make him hot milk. Now, they did say if he mixes up his tablets, he could end up end up having a hallucinogenic episode. And that was obviously what was going on. So, as a responsible carer, I did what I had to do. I went along with it. <laughs> well, I was a drama student. It was like an improvisation, wasn't it? <laughs> get down, get down, the bombs! So I got down. So I got down. <laughs> and we huddled up in our trench on the sofa, sheltering from the bombs that were falling all around us. And he goes, they're getting closer, they're getting closer, look out! So I started, so I started ducking and diving, <laughs> trying to avoid these imaginary bombs. And then he goes, Kathy, he was always getting my name wrong, I need a wee. Oh, crikey. I panicked by the thought of him pissing himself, but then I confused about who I was or where I was. I got up, but David keeps shouting, get down! 
So I got down and started pulling myself along in the crawl. <laughs> I'm making my way across no man's land, otherwise known as the living room, to the kitchen. As I'm scrambling round in the dark, dark, trying to find his pee pan, I'm rushing as I can hear him mumbling orders, fire! I couldn't find the pee pan, so I panicked and grabbed a saucepan. <laughs> when I get back, I start to unzip his trousers. There wasn't time to put my gloves on, so I'm scrambling around in his sergeant's mess, and I eventually pulled out his little soldier. Suddenly the door swings open. It's one of the senior carers. <laughs> what are you doing, Hattie? I'm down to visit David tonight. And he goes, oh, hello, Marjorie. Like, look, completely back to normal, as if nothing had happened. Thing is, I've still got his little old boy in my hand. Then I start to feel a hot, wet sensation on my foot and arm. Is it raining in the trenches? I look down and realise I'm getting a golden shower because what I thought was a saucepan was actually a colander. So I certainly did my bit for the war. I've been Hattie Ashdown. Thank you. Good night. Uh, my show's on. The last one is tomorrow at 3.45 at the Wee Pub. You have to go through Biddy Mulligans to get through it. I'd love to see you there. Thanks very much. Hattie Ashdown, everybody. Who's got to rush to get some food in between gigs. The tragedy of the performance life. Right, so... Uh, our last uh, slice of tragedy. Now I can't see any of you because of the lighting change in that last performance, but that's okay. I know what you all look like. Uh, well, not that well, actually. I'm not like. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, so, our last performer, she is a member of the stand up tragedy team that we love very much, who basically she's the, the stage manager, the person who keeps it all uh, running on time. Uh, tonight she's going to be doing a, a bit of performance, though, so she will, she will be timing herself, I guess, at the same time as doing it, because uh, she's, she's so cool like that. Uh, she's nearly got a PhD, but she's not quite got it yet. Uh, and uh, put your hands together for Liz Bailey! Um, so I'm a, I'm a historian, and, uh, ooh, yeah, you really can't see anybody here. That's fine. I'll imagine what you're, what you're saying or looking like. Um, so I'm a historian, and I believe that history is really fundamentally tragic. Everybody in it dies. Um, everyone's romances go really awry, and everybody's pretty miserable most of the time. So it, it, I, I think it's tragic uh, all the way through. But I'm going to give you some examples, some um, historical tropes to showcase why I think that history is tragic. So uh, one of the things that's really common in history right now is the idea that history is written by the winners. Every historian will tell you that. Well, sometimes it's not that cut and dry who's a winner and who's a loser. And uh, again, this is when it would be nice to be able to see you. Um, does anyone know what a Pyrrhic victory is? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, when you win five losers and great losses. Exactly. Exactly. Which is pretty tragic, right? You think you've won. Actually, you, you pretty much lost. And I'm going to explain to you what I mean by this by actually talking to you about where it comes from. So it comes from the Pyrrhic War. It's in the title. Uh, that's between Greece and Rome, and that's 280 to 275 BC. And uh, in a way, the Pyrrhic War is very similar to World War II. There's a lot of interlinking alliances. 
and there's this one small region that gets invaded and suddenly brings everybody into war. And uh, that's this tiny place called Tartantium that Rome invades and then Greece has to come in. The, the Greek king at this time, Pyrrhus, again, going back to Pyrrhic victory, um, is a very good strategic mind. He has war elephants. Who doesn't like a war elephant? Um, and he, he's doing pretty well holding out against Rome, but uh, anyone who knows anything about Roman history, the Roman war machine is an epic thing to behold, and you're not going to hold out for long. And he is not winning. He is losing and losing and losing, despite being this great tactician. And then comes the Battle of Escalum, and he finally, after two days, manages to eke out a victory against the Romans. But he famously says, another win like that will lose him the war. So that's where the Indian comes from, a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, a win, but it's such a great loss, it's, it's not really worth winning, and that's really tragic. Um, and another example of this I like from, from Roman history is, is actually from Julius Caesar, who among being a tragic figure himself was also a historian. Um, and his account of the Gallic Wars, the, pardon my Latin, Commentare del Bello Gallico, is uh, the, the most epic account of this war. And in it, he's facing this guy, Vercingetorix, which you might remember from various cartoons of Asterix varietals. Anyone? Um, in it, uh, this guy, Vercingetorix, is like Hector. He is the great uniter of the Gallic people. They go out, they unite behind him, they fight against Rome. He's winning against all odds, against the Romans. But again, the casualties, they are, they are adding up. And eventually he has to retreat to this tiny little fortified town. This is uh, the Battle of Elysian. And anyone who knows uh, fortified siege tactics, it doesn't work out well. Um, you get plague, you get uh, cuts in supplies, and eventually you're, you're going to end up dying. And they keep thinking reinforcements will come, and the reinforcements aren't in the numbers they need. And eventually Caesar wins, and it's this great victory. It launches Julius Caesar's career. Obviously, this is his account, so Caesar's great, Caesar's wonderful, he wins everything. Vercingetorix, despite really being the hero of the piece, it is a Pyrrhic victory for him, and he gets his head cut off, and uh, it doesn't end well for the Gauls. So Pyrrhic victories, it's when you really win, but you lose, and that's quite tragic for me. Um, one of the other, uh, I think, uh, fundamentally tragic tropes in history is reoccurrence theory. So everyone's heard some variation on this. Those who cannot remember the past are bound to repeat it. Uh, there's other variations on this. Um, what is the definition of insanity? doing the same thing over and over again. That happens a lot in history. The, uh, the Crusades are a really classic example. Uh, from, they're about 10 or so from 1095 to 1272. And in this, there's a papal decree, and all of the lords go and gather all their serfs. They go and they try to reclaim the Holy Land. And these are European lords trying to reclaim the Holy Land. And sometimes they hold it for a brief period of time, but then they lose it and they go back, and they fall back, and there's just this massive economic loss. But partially because there's this massive economic loss, then the popes have to keep declaring crusades in order to gain income so that everybody's happy. So it ends up being the self-repeating cycle. Again, kind of insane because they keep thinking there's going to be a different outcome. And the people in the Holy Land are having the other side of this and uh, it's probably something akin to, oh, you guys are back. Thanks for coming, raping and pillaging everything. See you next year. And uh, 
the American Revolutionary War, because I don't know if you noticed from my accent, I am American, um, is, is another interesting example of this. In uh, 1776, America declared independence from Great Britain because of taxation from afar, lack of representation, mostly economic aims. In 1812, the UK, or Great Britain at this point, is at war with France. And they don't want the US getting involved in this. They restrict and put embargoes on their involvement in trade with France. They're in general in expansion. And it's like they haven't learned from the last war. And a lot of people refer to this as the second revolutionary war. I like to call it revolutionary war part two, the revenge of Canada. Because they try to invade Canada. It doesn't work out well. Uh, the British and the Canadians end up burning down the White House. So good job. Well done. You got that one. Um, but again, it's, it's a bit crazy to think that there'll be a different outcome. But I, uh, the one that is really fundamentally, like, you've got to be kidding me on this. Um, you're a young, marriageable woman. You've got good income. You're pretty. It's in the 1600s. Henry VIII is like, hey, let's get married. <laughs> Wife number one? Yeah, OK. Two? Sure. Three? Yeah. Four, five, and six, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> My grand taught me this rhyme. It goes, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. I mean, come on. That's history repeating itself right there with seriously tragic consequences. And three of them are Catherine, so that, that's another example of uh, some sort of fetish. Um, <laughs> and I just want to leave you with one other sort of thought experiment. So uh, there's something called... Uh, the butterfly effect. And what, when they talk about this in mathematical terms, it's the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings in uh, Gibraltar can cause a hurricane in the Philippines. In time travel, it's the idea that if you step on a butterfly, you can completely alter the course of history. Uh, I'll give you an example. that With the American Revolutionary War, Paul Revere rode on his horse to go and alert the militia so they could fight against the British. What if the horse hadn't been there? Well, that would have had massively tragic consequences for the Americans, my visa issues would be a lot less. Um, but other people wouldn't be as happy. Um, so that's, that's one example of how the butterfly effect can have a tragic consequence. But then you can also, people have talked about this, try to prevent a tragedy and maybe cause another. So the idea that uh, Doctor Who talks about this, let's go kill Hitler. So you kill Hitler, you prevent World War II. You're preventing a tragedy, right? Well then you might not have the benefits of all of the World War II restoration, the creation of the British welfare state, mass education. So how do you know those moments in time? One of my favorite examples of this is Star Trek, the original series, and Dr. Bones McCoy, who is my spirit animal, goes through this portal back into the 1930s in, in the US. And uh, he's he meets this woman, and she's, her name's Edith Keeler, and she's a, a, a social worker and a do-gooder, and uh, he prevents her from getting hit by a car. And Spock and Kirk, who are on the other side of the portal, find out that now time has been completely rewritten, there is no federation of planets anymore, and the Nazis won the, the Second World War. So they have to jump back in, allow her to get hit by the car, etc. So Bones trying to prevent this tragedy causes this mass ripple effect, this butterfly effect through time. Um, back to the Future, another great example of this. Marty McFly starts doing this to himself, but he figures it out. He gets back, gets his parents together. He's, his timeline is no longer being rewritten. But if he hadn't gotten the DeLorean recharged, if lightning hadn't struck the bell tower, if he hadn't gotten back, let's say he stuck around, went to Alabama. This is 1955. He gets on a bus. He prevents this 
really obnoxious man harassing this little old lady, this little old black lady by the name of Rosa Parks. So he prevents that happening. Maybe he stalls the civil rights movement. Maybe he prevents it from happening at all. Maybe he goes on in the spree because he's gone crazy because he's stuck in time. And he prevents Martin Luther King Jr. from being assassinated. He prevents JFK from being assassinated. Prevents these tragedies. But what are the ripple effects? What is the butterfly effect of that? I don't know. Um, I don't know how we know when a moment is really important in time. I am not, to the best of my knowledge, a time lord. <laughs> I think that's probably the only way you know. But I would say, if you do get the chance to time travel, don't step on any butterflies. Thank you. OK. So this is the point in the show where I remind you about what I was saying at the beginning in the sad min section, that if you put £10 into our hat, uh, you can and give us your details. We'll send you the scent of tragedy. If you put a couple of pounds into the hat, you will get uh, some tragic snaps. Now, it, this show is part of the Free Fringe, and it's free for you to attend, and you can leave without paying any money, but it is not free for us to put on. And so if you can donate to us, we would be very, very uh, grateful for that. I mean, uh, this year has been a bit of a tragic year for me. I lost my job. Uh, I've actually got real-life problems, and I shouldn't actually be here on this stage. Uh, I should be sorting them out, but I'm not. I'm here because I got locked in, because that's how committed to tragedy I am. So that's the kind of thing that moves you to, to, to donate some money. Maybe, yeah, donate some money to pathetic me that's having a terrible life. Um, but there's more altruistic reasons to donate, of course. Supporting the arts is an important thing to do. The government aren't going to do that, so we kind of have to do it for ourselves support the arts, make the big society, and then tell the government they're not allowed to come and join us because we did it for ourselves and they can fuck off. Um, yes, so um, those are the kinds of reasons to put some money into the hat. You can find us at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter. You can like us or make friends with the tragedy on Facebook. Uh, we've got a kind of Edinburgh reunion show coming up in London on the 25th of September at the Dog Star in Brixton. We're going to be bringing our best and favourite people we've met up here down to London to do some more tragedy there. Um, and I hope you've had a good time at this tragedy night. Now, I had a tragic childhood. I don't really uh, like silence. I fill in gaps. So I will keep talking, you see, the thing, unless some people do some kind of clapping thing. There we go. Thanks very much, everybody. The tragedy is over. Please take your glasses and prevent more tragedy for the next show. This podcast was put together by me with the sound recorded by the excellent Stephen Harvey. And the music was by... Samuel Wilkinson and George Bufkin.